0: Thanks for that great singing and leading, and thank you for the, especially those first two songs of the three, because they pertain to this sermon. So you've either hacked into my computer, or you've read Mark 13. Oh, that's it. Telepathy. What is that? Tele, telepathy. 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 Well, good morning. We are in our 13th week of working through the 16 chapters of the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to say this today, and I'll probably say it three more times, and then we'll be finished with Mark. Our primary goal here is not to get through the Gospel of Mark. Our goal is to get the Gospel of Mark through us. And so... We want to take things from each chapter and by God's grace apply those things to our life. I remember last week we did a quick review of what we came up with the chapter titles for the first 12 weeks. Well, today we're on chapter 13. Now, this morning, when we get to chapter 13, everything's different, okay? Uh, there's a significant difference in chapter 13 when you compare that with the first 12 chapters. Each of the previous chapters had three or four or five topics, and our goal at that point was to choose one of those topics, or let me say this, instead of a topic, it may have been a paragraph. There were three or four or five or sometimes six paragraphs in each of those first 12 chapters, and what we did was we chose one paragraph from each chapter, something that we could take and apply to our life, by God's grace, would make a difference in the way we live and act. When we get to 13, everything's different. Chapter 13 only has one topic. And so this morning, instead of looking at an individual paragraph or an individual topic, we're going to look at the whole chapter of Mark 13. There are very few topics in the Bible that seem to get more attention. And there are very few topics that seem to create more controversy than the subject of Mark 13. Now, let me say that again. There are very few topics in the Bible that seem to get more attention, and there are very few topics in the Bible that seem to create more controversy than the the topic and the subject which we find in Mark 13. And the subject is end times. Woo! People have been trying to figure this out for 2,000 years, and I can tell you this morning, we're not going to get it all figured out here at Cross Point. We've been trying to get this figured out for two millenniums. So, the number one question is when is Jesus coming back? What, okay, when is Jesus coming back? And the second question is when is this world as we know it going to end? Now, if any of you have those answers, you can just. Follow along because there's a long list of people that have tried to figure this out before this morning. So both Christians and non-Christians seem to be fascinated by these questions. And when I say both Christians and non-Christians, even if they're skeptical about whether or not they want to believe that what the Bible says is going to happen, perhaps a major cause of this skepticism is because there are so many strange Can I use that word in church? Strange. There's so many strange. There's so many inaccurate predictions. Can I use those words? How about whacked out? There are so many wacky, whacked out predictions out there in the world from people who, in my opinion, have no idea what they're talking about. And they consider themselves experts in this area, about when Jesus is going to come back and when the world as we know it is going to come in. Now, let me share three of these whacked out, ridiculous predictions. One had to do with, uh, it's referred to as the Mayan Apocalypse. There are people who believed that by studying the Mayan culture, they could predict when the end of the world was going to happen they had history that goes back 5,125 years. Now, I don't know where all that history is that they claim to have, but the Mayans were a culture that lived in, I think it was southern United States, what, United States now, and then then they, they're gone from here, and I believe they showed up someplace in Mexico. But they have supposedly history that goes back 5,125 years, and they said that by studying the Mayan calendar, the world would end, write this down, because I don't know, they said the world's gonna end on December 21st, 2012. Now I don't think that happened, did it? We're still going. They didn't tell us exactly how the world would end, but they said it's gonna end. December twenty first two thousand and twelve but it didn't happen so you would cross that theory off okay there's another one of those end of the world predictions made by a guy named and this guy was actually kind of famous three four six eight years ago Harold camping this guy should stick to camping okay he is a claims to be a, a self professed expert on uh biblical numerology. In other words, he studies numbers in the Bible and thinks that he can come up with a way to predict the end of the world. Now, he predicted the end of the world. uh, So far, he has predicted the end of the world and declared that it would happen 12 different times. Okay, but I wouldn't put too much at stake into what he's predicting because he's been wrong 12 times in a row and I can just promise you this, based on this sermon we're going to get into he's get, whenever he comes up with a date forget it okay his most recent high profile prediction was for May 21st 2011 now, i don't think that happened either did it the world as we know it would end and jesus would come back no but he somehow claimed to have access to this information that May 21st 2011 was exactly 7,000 years after the biblical flood. I don't know where he got those numbers. So when I'm researching this, I wondered, is he talking about when it started to rain? Or was he talking about 40 days later when the rain stopped? Or was he talking about the, when, while the rain receded and the, uh, the ark came to rest on Mount Ararat in Turkey? What is he saying happened 7,000 years ago? But he goes right to the day. Well, the world didn't end on May 21st, 2011. When that date came and went, he, he declared that it, well, he apologized. He said his math was off a little bit. So he came up with another date. Uh, let's see, it was uh, May. It was seven months later. He said, I was wrong. It wasn't May. It's October 21st, 2011. But that didn't happen either. So if you, you hear about this guy, Harold Camping, you know, and I don't mean any disrespect for the guy. He should not be predicting end times things. He should be working at Cabela's or um, Bass Pro Shop in the camping department because maybe he'd have better luck there. The third strange prediction, and there's a long list of these strange predictions, was known as the Halley's Comet prediction. Now, I don't understand this. The longer I'm here, you will learn more about me than you learned when I walked in the door whenever that was January or February. I keep sharing my heart and telling you things I don't understand. Halley's Comet comes from out there someplace, and it seems to come by flying by the earth every 76 years or so. It's not exact, but it's close to... Well, in 1910, They predicted that Halley's Comet would come flying by Earth again, and it did, but they predicted that this time would be different than all those previous times because this time in 1910, when it comes by, it would be much closer to the planet Earth and it would destroy life as we know it. Everything would be dead and gone. That didn't happen, did it? It didn't happen. Well, it gets stranger. There's a group in Oklahoma. Anybody from Oklahoma? You might not want to raise your hand on this. There's a group from Oklahoma that decided they had come up with a way to survive even when Halley's Comet passes by so close that it's going to destroy everything. They began to gather all their bottles and fill them with air. I thought they already were full of air. But they According to the article I read, they filled them with air and then put a cork in there so the air couldn't get out. So that when Halley's Comet comes flying by and destroys everything in its path, there won't be any air to breathe so you could take the cork off the bottle. Now, not only was there a group in Oklahoma that was doing this, there were other people in Oklahoma that were buying those bottles filled with air. Was it Barnum and Bailey said there's a fool born every minute or something like that? I mean... It did not happen. The list of people and the groups that have tried to determine the exact date or time when the world will end goes on and on and on, and it just gets more ridiculous and more ridiculous. And that brings us to Mark chapter 13. Open your Bible. Mark 13. Jesus himself talked about the end times, well, perhaps more than just what I'm going to say, but he talked about it in Matthew 24, he talked about it in Luke 21. And now in our chapter today, he talks about it in Mark 13. Now, in my mind, it's interesting. And that's a word that I may use over and over again. It's interesting that Jesus never encourages us to set a date for his return. Never once in the Gospels does he say, listen, Crosspoint Church in Sioux Falls. Well, he doesn't say that. But he never says the church should try and figure out when I'm coming back. He never says that. And yet there are people and groups that they just can't get enough of this. It's like a fantasy. It's like an addiction. They just can't get enough. We gotta, we gotta try and figure out when is Jesus coming back? Instead, Jesus tells us three times. Now open your Bible to Mark 13. Three times in Mark 13, he says, be on guard. He says that in verses 9, 23, and 33. Now in my Bible, friends, I can only control what's in my Bible. I can't control what you do with your Bible. But if I had your Bible, I would underline or circle or put a box around that where it says, Be on guard in verses 9, 23, and 33. So the next time you're reading Mark 13, those words will just jump off the page. <clears throat> he also tells us three times in Mark 13 to stay awake, or your Bible might say, Keep awake. In verses 33, 35, and 37. No one knows but God when the world is going to end. That's a paragraph beginning in verse 32. But Mark 13, 36 says when it comes, it's going to happen quickly, it's going to happen suddenly, so we need to be ready. Now before we go any farther, let me say this, when you're in Mark 13... I'm going to read all 37 verses instead of just five or six because this same topic of the end times, but we're going to read it section by section, not all 37 in a row. And I'm going to make a few comments after we read each paragraph, okay? Now, if we lived in a perfect world and we don't, And if I wanted to change what I was doing, we could say we're going to spend one week on chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, six, all the way through 12, and when we get to 13, we're going to spend seven weeks on 13, but we're not going to do that. Maybe sometime we'll come back and go through each paragraph week by week, but for today we're going to go through all these paragraphs. So get your pencil out and hang on, okay? Mark 13 Follow along, verses 1 through 8. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stories and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Now, I can tell you, and those of you who've been around church for a while, you know that Mark 13 is a difficult passage to interpret. And I can tell you this that not all, not all faithful Bible teachers agree on the details. And I can tell you this here at Cross Point Church that not all Baptists believe on the details. So I would say it's a very high probability that not everyone at cross point is going to agree on all these details. But we're going to work our way through it and when we're done in another 20 minutes or so we'll say amen and go home and in verse 1 Jesus is leaving the temple for the last time. And you just have to sort of picture that. One of his disciples, just we don't know who it is, there's no name here. One of the disciples draws attention to the size and beauty of this temple. It was one of the greatest archaeological projects or monuments, wonders of the world. It was, it was just huge. The temple in Jerusalem was magnificent. It was made out of the white stone. And the boulders, I don't even know where all those boulders came and where all those rocks that could come from and all those pillars. And then on top of, on the outside of all the white stone, in many places it was covered with gold. And people, historians tell us that on certain times of day when the sun would come over the hill and that sun would reflect on the temple, it was, it was magnificent. It would almost, you'd get a reflection It would blind the person. It was so magnificent, you couldn't even look at it. Now the Jewish people living in Jerusalem at the time believed that the temple in Jerusalem would be the sanctuary of God forever and ever and ever, amen, and it would never be destroyed. It would be virtually undestructible because this is where God lived. So this past week, I tried to imagine, what what do you think was going through their minds? It's not what's going through our minds here in Sioux Falls in 2019. Just try and picture what's going through the minds of the Jewish people living in Jerusalem when Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. They have never heard anything like this. There will not be, let's see, he says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then Peter and John and James and Andrew. Remember, and remember those, those are the first four disciples, Peter and his brother Andrew and John and his brother James. Those are the four disciples that Jesus said, come follow me way back in Mark chapter one when Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. Those four... And the fifth one, Matthew, those five guys are all from the same little town up there, Capernaum. So now these four are asking him the question, when when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? The disciples are thinking about the end of the world. In their minds, they are not picturing this long break between the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. In their mind, they think, if, if the temple is destroyed, the world is next. It's all going to happen. Well, we know the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Romans. But Jesus, when they ask him, he doesn't exactly answer the question that they're asking. He doesn't answer the question, when is the world going to end? Instead, he talks about the destruction of the, of the temple and how this destruction is going to be the beginning of other end-time events. He, in that first paragraph, he says things like this. See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. They will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Alarmed. Nations and kingdoms will fight one another. Earthquakes and famine will take place. But these types of events only serve to set the stage for the final event. Let's go to the next paragraph. Mark. 13, 9 through 13. This is what God's word says. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to consuls, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before me. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over to be anxious deliver you over. Do not be anxious before him what you're going to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and his father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So, Let's just think where we were, now let's think where we are. Not only will there be famines and earthquakes and wars that we just talked about, not only is that going to happen on a global situation, but there will also be trials and persecutions on a personal level, which should serve to remind us that as followers of Jesus, we can expect to experience Difficult times. People who study such things tell us that there have been 70 million, picture that number, there have been 70 million men and women, boys and girls, who have been murdered. And the only thing they did to cause the murder was they put their faith in Jesus and told somebody that they loved him. Seventy million people have been martyred because they professed faith in Jesus Christ. Now that number is mind-boggling, but it gets even more mind-boggling. Forty-five million Let me just back up. 70 million in 2,000 years. Okay, got that more or less, It's not exact. 70 million since Jesus was crucified, buried, rose again, and went back to heaven. 70 million have been martyred. Of that 70 million, 45 million, 45 million of that 70 million were in the 20th century alone. So if we in our minds somehow live in a fantasy world, they think that Christians were only martyred back there in the Roman Empire, it's time to wake up. 45 million of the 70 million were martyred in the 20th century. And in the last 10 years, in the last 10 years, there have been, on an average, 270 Christians martyred every day. You won't hear that on the news. They don't want to talk about things like that. 270 every day. That's that's just over 10 men or women, boys and girls, every hour. Since you walked in the door, 10 or 12 have been murdered. And by the time you get home and get to sit down and have lunch, 10 or 12 more will be murdered. Jesus tells us to be encouraged because he says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Perseverance is the proof that we have faith in Jesus. Doesn't matter what happens through thick or thin, we are going to stay strong in our walk and love of Jesus. Perseverance is the only proof that our faith is real. It's going to be difficult But God promises to walk with us. Pastor Vance Havner, get your pencil out. You're going to want to write this down. Pastor Vance Havner said this about perseverance. He says, and I like what he says, I hope if I live long enough, one day, someday, I'll say one thing that people will remember that Steve Anderson said this. I don't think I've ever said anything yet. Pastor Vance Havner used to say this, faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Now, I like that so well. When I run across stuff like that, I actually write it in these pages in my Bible in the front and the back where there's nothing on but white. Here it is. Faith that fizzles before the finish was faulty from the first. Pastor Vance Habner, 1901 to 1986. Maybe he was right. Maybe he is right. Let's go to the next paragraph. Mark 13, 14 to 23. But when you see the abomination of desolation, just try to get your head around that phrase. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who was on the housetop not go down or enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation, as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect who he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here he is, the Christ, or look, there he is, Don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead people astray, if possible, the elect. Be on your guard. I have told you all things beforehand. This verse 14 introduces us to one of the most mysterious and difficult phrases found anywhere in the Bible the abomination of desolation. If you want to write this down that same phrase appears three other places in the Bible only in the book of Daniel. It appears in Daniel chapter 9:27, 11:31 and 12:11, only if you want that Daniel 9:27, 11:31 and 12:11. In Mark 13, Jesus seems to be using the phrase to mean some sort of extreme suffering and trial and perhaps pain according to verses 19 and 20, is going to come. Let's go to the next paragraph, Mark 14, verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Verse 24. In those days. What days? What days is he talking about in verse 24? He's talking about, in verse 24, the days after the tribulation. And after those days, it appears, it appears to me that the end of the world is close. Look at how Jesus, just imagine, the sun will be darkened, I mean, I, what does that look like? Is that like that thing that happened a year or two ago, that uh, e- eclipse? Is that, is that the right word? Is that what, is that what it's going to be like? But it isn't just something that lasts for 14 minutes. It's, it's, that's it. It stays that way. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Well, well if the sun is darkened, the moon can't give any light because the light doesn't come from the moon. It's a reflection of the sun. This third one would, would drive me and a few other people crazy. The stars. Maybe it's just a reference to meteorites. It says they're going to be falling from heaven. Wow! Just picture what that might be like. Go outside. There's no sun. It's dark, or it's almost dark. Well, the darker the sun gets, the less light there is. So, and we go outside, and now, oh, day or night, we can't see the moon. And these stars, all these stars are falling out of the heavens. And the powers of heaven will be shaken. At this, and one commentator, I I like what he said this, all this cosmic commotion and catastrophic judgment, that's a mouthful. It will signal that the end has come. In heaven and on earth, the universe will be shaken as God prepares to come in judgment in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, Then, then, this is one of those wow moments. Then, they will see the Son of Man. Talk about a moment of rejoicing and anticipation and excitement. Then, then, after the sun goes dark and the, you can't see the moon and the stars start falling from heaven, then, then we'll see the Son of Man coming. He will send out the angels in verse 27 who will gather all those people who responded to the gospel back in verse 10. Jesus is coming back. There's an old hymn. Some of you have been hanging around church long enough, you remember that hymn. He is coming again, he is coming again what a day of rejoicing it will be. I remember as a little kid in that country church where I grew up, we were singing that song. Jesus is coming back. I need an amen. Okay, let's go to the last couple verses. Mark 13, 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So it happens every year. I'm, I'm an old man, and it happens every year that I can remember. In the spring here in South Dakota, or I've lived in Minnesota and Iowa, same thing happens everywhere. It starts warming up, the sun, the heat comes, and the trees start, these little buds, you know, it's fun to watch that. You know, the older you get, the more fun it is. You know, as a kid, you don't pay attention to that. But you know, things are changing. And in a few weeks, all these leaves, all these trees are full of leaves. Jesus said in 29, when you see these things, these things are those things he was just talking about. When you see that he, these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. Then Jesus drops the bombshell in verse 30. He says, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. The question is, who is this generation? Well, it for sure wasn't the disciples in Jerusalem in 30 AD or 33 AD. It wasn't that. That generation is long gone. This generation refers to those people who are alive when they see all these things happening in some sort of rapid fire succession, one thing after the next, which could be as small as a span of 10 years or five years. And I don't know. I, I don't know how this is going to happen. I don't know if the sun's going to go dark one day and the stars are going to start falling that night, or whether the st- sun just sort of begins to darken over a period of five or 10 years and then the stars start falling. I don't know. But they're going to happen in some sort of progress, repetition. Could be within a decade. History will come to an end. This present earth as we know it will be gone and there will be a new heaven and a new earth according to Revelation 21. But God's word never passes away. Isaiah said in Isaiah 48, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let's go to Mark 13 verse 32, our last paragraph. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Don't ask me. Don't ask me. I'm saving you time. Don't ask me when Jesus is coming back. Don't even ask me. God, I don't know. It says right here, no one knows. Don't ask me. I wouldn't waste my time asking anybody because it says right here, no one knows. But concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come and suddenly find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Or maybe in the new Steve Anderson translation, it won't be stay awake. It'll wake up and pay attention to what's happening in the world around us. Jesus is clearly speaking about his coming again. But he reminds us in this verse that he himself doesn't even know when that's going to happen. Only God the Father now here at Crosspoint, as I mean we this is not only at Cross Point, but I would say all over the world, among Bible-believing evangelical Christians, we believe that when Jesus came to earth, He came in the full deity of God himself, but he took on human skin and he lived among us. And when he came to earth, he has all the attributes that God has. He is literally God in the flesh, including The attribute of omniscience, which is just a big fancy word of saying, knowing all things. Yet here in verse 32, Jesus clearly says that in this situation, he himself does not know when this is going to happen. So, here's the problem. I I won't even, I don't want to point fingers at you. I don't want to blame you for anything. I'll take all the blame. We try to wrap our head around Jesus and we think we know everything about him, which we don't. But it is nothing short of miraculous and magnificent and so mind-boggling, I can't even understand it, that when Jesus, the living Son of God, came to earth and took on flesh and became a human being, he could somehow, and I can't explain this, I can just tell you that it happened, he could somehow turn off some of those attributes. And then he could turn them back on. But he, he learned, or he didn't learn, he already knew how to turn those off so that he could actually live as a human and experience the experiences that we have. And then at times he could turn those back on. But one of the things that is somehow turned off is this ability to know when his heavenly father was going to send him back. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. Jesus himself doesn't even know. How in the world are we supposed to know? But we know this, what we're supposed to be doing until he comes back. We should be on guard, we should stay awake, and we should pay attention to what's happening all around us because Jesus could return at any moment. Our chapter title for Mark 13, we're going to keep doing chapter titles, Jesus is coming again. Now there's this old hymn, and you will really love this. I am not going to sing this for you. But I'll tell you what the first verse is. He is coming again. He is coming again. The very same Jesus rejected a man. He's coming again. He's coming again with power and great glory. He is coming again. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer, and we'll ask the ushers to come and take this morning's offering. Let's pray. Next week, by the way, your homework assignment, read Mark 14, if you have time, before you come to church next Sunday. Mark 14. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Yeah, I, am, I am just fascinated and overwhelmed and so grateful and thankful that, that I live in a time and a place where I can have your word and hold it in my hands. And and we all, Lord, I hope we all are appreciative of that. We think of brothers and sisters in Christ who, even this morning, those 10 or 12 who were murdered this past hour, and we think of how devastating that is to their families. And all that these people did was stand up for Jesus. And And Lord, we live in a country that's half crazy or more than that. <clears throat> but we still can talk about our faith and we can share Jesus and we can read our Bibles in public and God we're grateful for that but we pray for our brothers and sisters who are struggling and can't do that we look forward with much expectation to the day you come back we thank you Lord for giving us the faith to believe in Jesus it's a gift from you to us and so, Lord, thanks for allowing us the fellowship with brothers and sisters this morning. And we pray, for, thank you for this offering that we're about to take. And we, we thank you for each gift and each giver. We ask that you'd be with our board as they continue to be, attempt to be good stewards of all that we entrust into their care. And we ask, Lord, you'd care for us until we can come back next Sunday and read Mark 14. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.